Hey, everybody, and welcome to another My Angular Story. This week, we're talking to Ward Bell. Ward, do you want to say hello? Hello. Now, uh, we've had you on a number of Adventures in Angular shows because you're one of our regular hosts. Um, and usually, I start out, we have a, host, or, you know, a past guest from the show, and so it's like, hey, you, you were on this episode. So I'm curious, what, what's been your favorite episode on the show? Well, you know, uh, call me solipsistic, but I like it when we have our panel shows <clears throat> and we all go at it with each other um, <laughs> because the, um, the humor is high and, uh, you know, the, the chance of offending is very low and we always find ourselves in fascinating corners. Yeah, it's actually kind of funny. Um, we changed up editors at the beginning of the year and our current editor, he, he's like, he's like, Adventures in Angular is insane. <laughs> That's the way we want to keep it. Yeah. Oh, by the way, the cleverness of my response there, by the way, means that I cannot offend any of our guests. <laughs> yeah, he, it, it's really funny though, because he's like, he's like, there's stuff in there. Should I take that out? I'm like, no, no, just leave it. <laughs> they know what they're doing. Oh, so you say. This episode is sponsored by Sentry.io. Recently, I came across a great tool for tracking and monitoring problems in my apps. Then I asked them if they wanted to sponsor the show and allow me to share my experience with you. Sentry provides a terrific interface for keeping track of what's going on with my app. It also tracks releases so I can tell if what I deployed makes things better or worse. They give full stack traces and as much information as possible about the situation when the error occurred to help you track down the errors. Plus, one thing I love, you can customize the context provided by Sentry. So, if you're looking for specific information about the request, you can provide it. It automatically scrubs passwords and secure information, and you can customize the scrubbing as well. Finally, it has a user feedback system built in that you can use to get information from your users. Oh, and I also love that they support open source to the point where they actually open source Sentry if you want to self-host it. Use the code devchat at sentry.io to get two months free on Sentry's small plan. That's code devchat at sentry.io. Uh, anyway, so yeah, so this, this show is more of a coding journey. So we talk about how you got into programming and how you got to where you are, how you got into Angular, you know, all of that wonderful stuff. Um, so if you don't mind, we'll just jump in right at the beginning and talk about how you got into programming. Okay. So I was hanging out with Charles Babbage and, you know, and, uh, <laughs> oh, and, and, and yeah. Ada Lovelace, you know, we were just having coffee one day and said, you know, he said, I got this analytics engine. Are you want to play? Uh, and then a hundred years later, no. Um, so how did I get it? So I actually got in, uh, uh, in the sixties, late sixties. Um, and I was hanging out in a high school and, uh, it was just one of the, you know, in those days there were computers were not on anybody's mind. Um, they were, as fantastical as something you would read in Scientific American and say, you know, that could be something someday. Um, uh, but nobody really knew what they were or cared. And, uh, and when I say nobody, I mean the general populace. Clearly, at IBM, they cared a great deal. And um, one, of the, one of the things that they did is they, they did some really big stuff with uh, missile defense and so forth. And when you done well, made IBM a lot of money, you became a fellow and you could pursue your own passion. And one of their passions was um, uh, school you know, instruction, computers in the schools. Does that sound familiar? Yes, yeah, what goes around comes around. Um, 
So, uh, you know, since the beginning of time, there have been uh, smart people um, who wanted to reach out to uh, and, and approach education as an important place to bring computing. And I, I was hanging around in high school. And so one of these, um, one of these, uh, they, they built a long distance line to my school from Armonk, New York, and uh, threw some terminals on the end of it. And they were doing APL. Because believe it or not, AAPL, which stands for A Programming Language, which is one of the original functional programming, lang functional-ish programming languages out there. Well, uh, goes around. You said yes, before, exactly. Right? Uh, it, it was a brilliant language. It was also tiny. It was interpreted, which at the time things were just compiled, but this was interpreted. And it was one of the very first languages to run on the IBM 360, which is a mainframe if you haven't heard of it. And uh, it was tiny, 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 tiny. And, it, you know, it ran for the time fast. And we had 16K of memory to play with, which was, you know, what would we do with all of that? So I know, right? Uh, yeah. So I wrote a poker program. I didn't play poker. But, you know, it was some way to <laughs> interact with a computer. Thought nothing of it. Anyway, get out of high school. Time for a job. What the heck is a kid going to do has no money and can't quite get, get to college? He goes to... He plays up the IBM card and he gets, um, gets in at Cornell University Medical School as a programmer in New York City, where I was taken under the wing of a wonderful mentor uh, who was a neuroanatomist, which means he taught the pathways in the brain and so forth and researcher. And um, he was fascinated by computer assisted instruction. What goes around comes around. So my early work with functional languages was in what, you know, natural language processing and computer-aided instruction. Wow, what a great way for a long-haired, smelly, uh, hippie-looking kid to get a start in the game. And uh, that's where it all began. That's awesome. Didn't have so any real intention to do anything. And by the way, oh, I read something, I learned something very fascinating in an article the other day. There was a time when there were more women, a lot more women in our field. And this uh -huh. was that time. And part of that was because there weren't personal computers around. Nobody was playing games. Nobody had come out of CS schools. Nobody had an advantage. And in the dark history, darker history of computing, women had been, well, the word for a co computer was a, actually a human being who computed. And a lot of those women in the early days a lot of those computers, people who calculated, were women. And, and so you didn't have, you didn't, there was no male advantage and it wasn't perceived of as a male field. And those two things um, meant that like, you, know, you didn't have to have a degree, you just showed up. I was a kid, showed up out of high school, taxi driver, uh, pole dancer, um, uh, uh, PhD in Slavic languages. These were my colleagues at Cornell and they were women and they're men and they just showed up. Yeah. Yeah. I think a good example of this is the movie Hidden Figures. Yeah. I don't know if you've seen that, but yeah. yeah. Oh, gosh, yes. Although, you know, she confronted some very real yeah. resistance. But now I'm, I'm talking about entering in the 70s and it was just the beginnings of a women's movement. So we were a little bit uh, more aware <laughs> of what was going right. on. And uh, not to, oh my God. Oh my God. I mean, I'm still embarrassed by the person that that had my name back then when I was that <laughs> I think I, I think if you're uh if you're not a little bit at least embarrassed by the person who had your name back then you're you're not growing 
So, but, but we were, we were like, you know, we came out of everywhere and we were valued for what we could do. Yep. And, um, and there was no, no advantage to having spent, you know, as, as emerged in the eighties, um, uh, of having spent wasted your youth playing video games, which were primarily boy things. And then walking into, you know, computer science school saying, I already know about computers and, and basically turning <laughs> it into a bro culture that alienated, uh, women. So I'm not saying that's the only reason, uh, but I'm saying it was a compelling reason. Um, and it, it was just, it was just a different time. Right. So uh, I'm sure you uh, had a little bit of your career before you got into JavaScript. <laughs> yes, we have not gotten to JavaScript. Let's hustle. Uh, okay. So, uh, you know, I, I needed money to go to, to college and then eventually grad school. Right. Which was going to be in sociology, by the way. No CS. Never took a CS course. Um, sat in on one once. Um, but no, uh, so, uh, uh, it turned out if you knew anything about computers, you could get a job as a consultant. And so summers I would work, uh, in the financial district in New York, writing APL on mainframes, nice. uh, writing financial programs and, and APL became a popular language, uh, with investment banking firms, uh, back in the day and to still, to this day, it's still used there. So I was a consultant forever because I was trying to get through graduate school and not be into the, into this game. And then somewhere I realized that I was really doing more computing than I was going to grad school. And I had a, a revelation that maybe grad school was not for me, not in sociology. Oh, but one, but my thesis would have been so great because there was um, in, in <laughs> Berkeley, in the Berkeley, in the a, in the early eighties, I, I was studying the way in which, um, uh, programmers organi are organized and the kind of work that they do and how and how it contrasts with other you know then popular uh, themes about what automation does uh, to to workers behavior and so I hooked up with this group in Berkeley California called community memory you can look them up mm -hmm. they had this wacky idea that um, computers um, should be in public places and just let people wander up to them and and start sharing information and talk, having conversations with each other on it uh, like that was ever going to happen. I know, right? Yeah. I and wish they, we had something like that now. I wish we had something like that now. Such a brilliant idea. It was before, the internet existed as the DARPA net at the time, but it was not right. yet the internet or the web. And they built their own boxes and put them in laundromats and coffee shops and things like that. And people, um, would converse with each other and then we would get the printouts of their conversation because just like Facebook, hey, their information was our information. We can see what they all talked about and try and right. figure out whether we were, this was a sort of a lefty leaning group, whether, whether we were transforming the social fabric in some positive way, which we weren't. Um, mostly the conversations were every bit as banal as we know them today. Uh, so anyway, that disappeared beneath the waves. Uh, and then I went to work for GE you know, because you got to go from a left-wing org organization to GE. That's just a natural transition. And uh, I um, did a lot of programming for them for a number of years as a consultant until they invited me to become, cross the barrier and become, and this was the best move I ever made. So listen to this, folks. Um, I've been writing code all this time and taking orders sort of indirectly from the business. 
And they invited me, they had a big problem in the business and they invited me to cross that boundary and go over there and be on the business side and start telling the IT department what it was that we wanted. And the guy who figured out that I would, I would be a good candidate for that knew that he had been buffaloed by the IT department for so long, the only way he was gonna dig out of the hole he was in was to get somebody who didn't take, you know, didn't fall for the excuses, could just make, make the change happen. But for me, what it was, and here's my recommendation to everybody, it was a chance to understand how, it's, you know, that it wasn't all about technology decisions, it was about business decisions. What do we need to accomplish? Are we accomplishing anything here? And to value what uh, the business people managed to somehow scrap together through Excel or whatever else they had on their own without the help of the IT department, because at least they were solving problems. Whereas we were luxuriating over there in the IT department, kicking around code as long as we wanted to, the way we thought it ought to be, and not actually meeting any needs at all. And to be on the other side of that, to cross that fence and to walk in those shoes, mixing metaphors, that is one of the best things you can do in your career. One of the best things I ever did, because it was at that moment that I've learned, I, I learned two things. That what people wanted was important. <laughs> I thought it seemed strange. And I also, at that moment, something happened because I really wasn't paying attention to computing at that point as a, as a practice, as a discipline, as something that had discipline. And suddenly mm -hmm. I became also interested in how programs actually work and how we really, how we build them. Um, and, and now I became interested in, in, in the kind of academic stuff that would have not interested me at all in the previous years that I would have sort of floated through in CS, but never really understood. So those were, that, that was big moments. From there, you know, you know it's uh, interesting. Start... I just want to chime in real quick. Yeah, I hear yeah, some right people there. say that, you know, every developer should go freelance for a year for some of those same reasons, right? Wow. Where you have to go run your own business and, you know, fight some of these things. And if you're not adding value, they want you gone, especially well, smaller business. Exactly. And the other great thing about consulting is you get fired a lot. Yeah. I mean, I got fired a lot, not because I was bad, um, that I, as far as I know, but because, Hey, it's a consultant. The gig lasts so long and then it's time on you go and you change, you go from one business to another, from one project to another. And when you're just, when you, you know, when you sign up for one company, I don't care if it's a startup or not, and you live there year after year after year, you have no idea what it's like until, and you're, and then the first time that you go, you think it's a tragedy. I know I did. Mm -hmm. Tears. Oh, <laughs> I'm, yeah, I was like a, like a baby, yeah. but eventually it's kind of like, really? You're cutting me loose. Oh, this is going to be great. I get to do something different. Yep. And, and that's where, you, that's an important career. Yeah. It's a career, so, important career moment. Absolutely. So uh, going back to your story, what happened after GE? Um, so, uh, well, that was a place that I got let go. They sent me to Germany to set up a leasing company and I flew over there uh, for four months. And the minute I landed, they said, well, you know, we're actually selling your company and we don't want you to do that. So, <laughs> so you're going to be out of a job, but you got to spend four months there just killing time. And you can't let anybody know that we're not, <laughs> oh, geez. we're not going to do it. So I used the time productively in Germany, needless to say, um, and uh, came back, 
And now it was time to get a, get a job. Uh, by that time, I actually somehow managed to spend seven years at GE. It started as a three-month contract, and I was seven years at GE. Um, some great years there, by the way. That mm -hmm. was, I know, people think, oh, you know, how horrible could that have been? Couldn't have been a more formative experience. Right. Uh, uh, an enterprise is not necessarily where you go to die. It's just what you do with it. Yep. Um, so uh, from there, uh, I, it was now the 90s and it's time for startups, right? That was the first wave of, oh, yeah. of a startup. And of course, um, a buddy of mine invited me to join a startup that made absolutely no economic sense. And I, <laughs> about it and I said, you know, this makes no sense. He said, I know, but the, like the valuations are like crazy and they'll give you all kinds of stock. And if you hit it just right, you're going to walk away you know, with, with big bucks. And so, you know, I had a, a high stock deal and they gave me an apartment in Santa Clara and I'm doing all this stuff. Of course it, it blew up. <laughs> with no value. Yeah. You know, so I, so I just missed it by this much. Um, so that, that was out. Then we, you know, then there was the, some kind of economic crisis. I can't remember what it was. I guess it was just the web blowing up. All yeah, those, the dot-com bubble. Yeah, all those uh, dot-coms cratered. And so naturally, we started another one. Of course. Um, yeah, because what else are you going to do? And it was, was when .NET was just uh, an alpha. Mm -hmm. And we were really interested in client-side computing. Never, never, never believed that... Um, uh, you should build a client application on the web because, you know, going back to the server all the time for anything was so stupid. You couldn't deliver a decent user experience. And that was absolutely true then. Mm -hmm. uh, there were some JavaScript attempts at the time, and they all were fragile, and they were slow, and they were awful. And with .NET, you could build a client-side application and distribute it over the web. Not easily, but you could do it. The target computer had to have .NET on it, but you could do it. And so right. we were really excited. And we built things in WinForms um, in those days. And that we built a framework, an ORM uh, for client-side. And that was the founding of IdeaBlade, my current company. Um, then Silverlight came along and we said, wow, this is so much better than having to, because you didn't have to rely on .NET on the client. Right. And, and Silverlight, I got to tell you, was really brilliant. I mean, the mistake was that it, it said, we're not going to use HTML as the templating language. We're going to have our mm -hmm. own. That was, a, that was probably an error. But still, it was, it was wonderful to be able to deliver a client-side experience over the web without any deployment um, hassle other than going to the, you know, you went to the, the link. And, you know, five meg, hey, who cares, right? of uh, the client size. That was small. That was the small, the hello world was five meg. Um, but then there was this thing called the iPhone. Never yep. if you heard of it. Yeah, yeah, uh, I have one. Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, I didn't because I had a Palm Pilot and then I had a Windows phone. But uh, but they, 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 Apple decided that it didn't like Flash. And so it wasn't going to let Flash load in the browser. And that pretty much meant that Silverlight wasn't going to run in the browser either. Right. And it was game over for Silverlight, just like that. You snap your fingers and your technology is gone. 
Well, Steve Jobs snapped his fingers, but yeah. Right, right, right. Well, no, but Microsoft had to recognize the reality. No, and, absolutely. And, you know, they did in surprisingly quick fashion. Uh, partly that was because uh, Silverlight was not, you know, there were forces at work in the Windows uh, group, which was very strong at the time, that hated mm -hmm. it. There were forces at work in the ASP Aetna, Aetna. Uh, world that hated it. So there were political forces, but but really it was the reality that um, the dream of being on every um, browser and every um, venue was gone. Right. Um, and so, I've talked to a number of people that made the transition to JavaScript at that point. Yep. John and I were together. John Pop and I. We were there for that moment. He was um, he was a Silverlight evangelist. Well, I don't know what they called him, but he was evangelizing Silverlight at that time. And um, Oh, and then, and, you know, so then there was this thing, like somebody told me there was JavaScript and I said, are you kidding? I programmed with that in the nineties. I don't ever want to see it again. Uh, and, and, and then he said, well, don't worry. It's not on the client. It's on the server. And I said, now you really got to be kidding. Uh, <laughs> this thing node. I said, you're just out of your freaking mind. He says, yeah, go try it. You know? So I goofed around with it. Eh, you know, I could see that the V8 was, uh, engine was changing changing the calculation. Right. Uh, and now with Silverlight dead, uh, we began to think, oh my God. And there was a, the guy who was leading Silverlight. I remember this so clearly. We're on a tram together and we had this product and uh, that worked for, the, for Silverlight. And he said, you know, you guys really ought to look at JavaScript. And I said, come on. But this was a really sharp guy and an experienced guy. He says, you really ought to look at JavaScript. I said, are you kidding me? That's just awful. He said, no, take a look. Take a look again. All right. So I went through the same thing, but did you? Well, I didn't transition from Flash to JavaScript. I was much more backend focused with Ruby on Rails. <sighs> so Ruby is kind of this. Yeah, is it Ruby? Is this happening in the Ruby world about this time also? Uh, to a certain degree. I mean, people still build server rendered applications, but you know, the front end frameworks really started to make people think about this stuff. Yeah. I mean, even just having it nicely organized by backbone was a big deal. Well, we just had jQuery at that in the beginning, yeah. right? And, but jQuery was a revelation because you finally were able to get over the, the browser, the different browsers, which just, just destroyed any productivity. Yep. jQuery got us out of that. And that was such a brilliant piece of work. I mean, we make fun of it now, but you can't, you, you got to realize no, how, what a so stroke of genius trouble. that was. Yep. And that opened things up and that made, that made things like backbone possible yep. so i did you know i did some backbone knockout for a while we really thought knockout was going to win i have this habit of picking <laughs> a lot of people thought knockout was going to win well and you know it, it for you know there were some good reasons yeah uh knockout was really good and the documentation was really good and it was written by a guy who's who has this simpatico intelligence and communication skills named Steve Sanderson. That's a, if you don't know who he is, but you do know, um, oh, it's killing me. I'm, the guy from React, what's it? Dan Abramoff. Uh -huh. If you've ever seen Dan Abramoff speak and you've read what he writes and you see how he approaches the world, you know, you just want to be part of whatever Dan is doing. And Steve was that way. And Knockout was that way. It was just, it, uh, it understood how important it was to, to communicate to, to developers that this was a happy home. And so we took on Knockout. But, and, and, and you know, AngularJS is coming. Funny hmm? enough, on JavaScript Jabber, very early on. So that's the time frame where we yeah. were JavaScript yeah. Jabber. Yeah. And, and it was good. 
Uh, and then Steve, what, oh gosh, what's his name? It's got um, Rob Eisenberg hooked it together with some other things that we borrowed from the .NET world uh, and came up with something called Durandal. So now you didn't just have a framework for, because Knockout was very exclusively focused on how do I interact between JavaScript objects and, and the screen and, and through templating and binding. Right. But you need a lot more. And so um, Rob came up with something called Durandal. And so we started writing Durandal apps commercially and where well, the world was good. Um, but Knockout, with Knockout, you essentially had, in order to make it really work properly, you had to transform the objects into getters and setters uh, in order that raised events in order for the binding system to work. There was no way back in those days to, to automate that very easily. I mean, we had our own way. So there's this thing called Angular. And I watched somebody do a presentation and I laughed it off. And I looked at it and I said, this can't possibly work. Again, once again, showing my capacity for picking technology. Cannot possibly work because it's executing, it's looking at every change, every cycle of the JavaScript engine. There is no way it can examine every property quick enough in a real application. This episode is brought to you by TripleByte. Applying to programming jobs sucks. You have to put the right keywords in your resume. You spend hours and hours on the phone screens and take home projects. And that's assuming the company even responds to your application. Well, if you're a software engineer, TripleByte can help. They work with over 400 top tech companies from big names like Dropbox and Adobe to exciting startups. You do one brief online interview with them. And if you do well, you go straight to final interviews with the company on their platform. It's like the common app for software developers. TripleByte does not look at your resume or where you went to school. All they care about is if you can code. I've helped dozens of software developers with various credentials get jobs. And this looks like a terrific way for you to get in and get interviewed and get a job without a lot of the hassle and overhead. You can go check them out at triplebyte.com slash a story. That's triplebyte.com, byte as in eight bits. As a special offer for listeners of this show, if you take a job through TripleByte, they'll offer you a $1,000 signing bonus. So it, there's no way it can do it. No way it can get around the horn there, you know, an, uh, fast enough, particularly since it didn't go around once. It would look at all the bindings, all right? And then maybe you did something in response to some change that was the user made and you might mo change the model and that should update the screen. So it went back around again. And if you did, that meant the model wasn't stable. And so it updated the screen and went around one more time and it would keep going around until the model stabilized or you'd gone around 10 times, in which case it threw up. And I said, this can't work. There is no way this can work, except that when I looked at it, it could work. And what it meant was so liberating. It meant that I could hook the template. I could bind a template to any kind of object, not just a special knockout object, but any object. And it made one instantly more productive. Uh, and it had two-way data binding. I don't know how that became a bad word in our, because to me, two-way data binding remains an important, well, what I, the idea that with a single piece of syntax, you can simultaneously specify how the value gets from the class into the template and the user action that updates that property goes, flows back into the model. That's that just with a single piece of syntax. We call that two-way data binding. And Angular, Angular, the Angular we know today has that, even though they would resist calling it two-way data binding because two-way data binding is a dirty word. 
Um, but it's a, you know what, it's enormously productive. Well, Angular had it and almost overnight, everything switched for us to Angular, what we now know is AngularJS and the world was good. But finally, HTML and JavaScript, yeah. What? Far down the road. Uh, what was the demo you saw? Do you remember? Uh, I don't, I just remember writing my own, uh, and, you know, to see if I'd really, really understood it correctly. If it really was doing that, I mean, I went hunting for events and couldn't find them. Uh -huh. So I don't remember seeing a demo so much as writing one. Okay. Uh, was there a, was there a, a I don't know. I, I, I don't remember there being like a, like a groundbreaking. Yeah. I, 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 I ran into angular through Joe and Aaron. Ah, so no, uh, no, I had no, I just stumbled into it. And I think I, I, I think I actually talked John into taking a look at it. It's usually the other way around. John usually tells, <laughs> tells me to take a look at something that I don't believe in. Right. Um, uh, but it was a colleague of mine who thought Angular was going to be a winner. And I said, no, you're wrong. It's going to be knockout. Uh, but I, I, once again, I had made, <clears throat> you know, you want investment advice, just do the opposite of whatever I tell you. I <laughs> gotcha. Yeah, well, and, and I agree with you on the two-way data binding. I mean, it really broke through a lot of productivity things for me too. You could just drop a script. You dropped a script tag on your yeah. code. It felt like this. You dropped a script tag yep. on your code and you were hooking up and you were going. It was, and it had DI, which I love, you know, I'm, kind of, I'm coming from .NET. So DI makes a lot of sense. The, the, uh, dependency injection made a lot of sense to me. And, um, you know, there were, it was still JavaScript and all that stuff, but it was a, it was a great step forward. We could build real things yep. with it. Uh, and then HTML, you know, the, the five finally is out there and, and people uh, and the Angular team is ready to take another crack at it and come up with a, a framework, a new brand new framework, which, uh, totally different, which, um, they decided to call, you know, just, I don't know, they had to come up with a name of some kind and they decided to call it Angular. <laughs> <laughs> Remember? It was like, oh no. So, uh, uh, and then they had that wonderful October 31st uh, unveiling, uh, Halloween unveiling in which they did RIP Angular and that. Oh really, man. That was a disaster. Yeah, it was. A marketing disaster. But it was still the right move, but, um, but they, it's, you know, it's uh, hubris again. You think everybody loves you all the time. You don't really, you know, they don't, re everybody doesn't realize how ready developers are to say, well, you screwed me. I'm going someplace else. I'm taking my business somewhere else. You've got to be kind to the developer. Um, and I, it's a lesson that I think, um, Companies never tire of uh, learning the hard way. Um, so anyway, Angular, uh, I was in early on the Angular, uh, the move to Angular. Uh, uh, and, you know, I could see what, what was going to be possible. I didn't realize how, just how important TypeScript would be. Uh, I played with it up to that point and it was, you know, it looked promising right from the beginning, but in its early days, it was painful to use. Um, but it turned a corner. 
uh, Angular team smartly um, set aside its vision of writing its own language and adopted TypeScript, which was very wise. And um, there you have it. Um, so Angular was taking off and I was kind of involved early. Uh, and in the early days, we were complaining a lot about lack of documentation. I think uh, every framework suffers from this. Things like Yes, it's true. And I can remember after some sort of show, some conference or something like that, they kept some of uh, the loudmouths around and said, what do you think of this Angular thing? And so naturally I went off being a certified loudmouth. <laughs> I went off on the lack of documentation and how important it was to adoption. And Brad Green, who runs the Angular the sort of product, I don't know what his official title is, but it's his uh, overall from a business perspective which isn't to say he doesn't know technically, he knows technically perfectly well everything that's going on in there. Um, so anyway, Brad says, well, you know, if I paid you, would you do something about it? I said, I sure would. And so um, we- I always wondered how you wound up with that gig. It was a dare, you know, he dared me. And I said, yeah. Now I think they actually needed, you know, I mean, they, they clearly had a need, they recognized the need. Right. Um, but he looks in this circle here and says, uh, you know, would you do something about it? I said, I sure would. Um, and, I, and so uh, we got together, my, my little company, Idea Blade, and, and Brad and Igor and some folks, and we hammered out what the, what the characteristics of um, a documentation framework for Angular would look like and where the content would come from because we were charged both with building the underlying framework, which we did in Angular, right? <laughs> the first going, not, a, not the new Angular, sorry, in AngularJS. Uh, and which later became an embarrassment. Uh, and, and, but what I did was I got to go out um, with the help of Naomi. I can't remember her last name, but oh, she was good. And we hunted down people who said interesting, you know, who wrote interesting things about Angular and AngularJS and, asked if they would um, be willing to contribute. You know, we pay them. Not a lot, but we pay them to right. write, write content. And so we started writing Angular documentation. And for the next year and a half or two, um, I was privileged to be the ringmaster of the Angular <laughs> documentation effort. And it brought me, it, it taught me so much uh, working with people from around the world who uh, were interesting in their own right and working with the Angular team. And it was a great, great experience. And we did good stuff. I think we did good work. Yeah. It's in my opinion, anyway, it's, it's some of the best documentation out there. And I think it speaks as much to your, um, your, you know, kind of the vision that you had as well as just, having a cohesive effort around it. I think a lot of communities really lack that. And so the documentation just kind of gets generated out of code comments and things like that. And you have the smattering of blog posts and there's not really a, a clear, Hey, this is how we do this. And, you, well, you know, know, I've seen, I've seen it kind of get uh, mimicked a little bit by like view. So they have a pretty cohesive um, yeah. documentation team now. 
Um, I haven't seen that as much with React. No. But yeah, you know, it it really just speaks to okay, you know, we had, uh, you know, one person in there kind of driving the train or driving the truck, and you know, getting us where we needed to go, and you know, so you you helped everybody else get where they needed to go to get the documentation done, but it all came out of one, you know, central idea around how it was supposed to look. Well, and there there are two things I'd like to tack on to that first. I have to tip my hat to, to the Angular team and to Brad in particular because he, he, they, were, they were willing to make an investment. They were willing to make, put dollars on the line, yep. uh, treat it like a real project, treat the documentation as a product feature from the beginning. And right. you, know, you put your money where your mouth is and they put their money where their mouth was. And then they gave time. You know, Igor, trust you know, and, and Pete and George, Pete Darwin and George, uh, I'll get the names later. And cause I, you know, it, you get to the point where you're on a first, you know, you, you just think first names and, um, uh, you know, and the Alex's and the, uh, and, um, I mean, I, I could just go on and on. I mean, what, I don't, what's the matter with me? Um, uh, because I'm afraid it's like at the Academy Awards, I'm afraid to leave somebody out. Um, there were so Victor and, um, uh, uh and all these other names that are at the tip of my tongue and it's, it, I'm, I'm embarrassed to leave them out. So I'm not even going to name any more names, but you know who you are and you know, um, you know how important you were giving of your time um, and, and then Google giving of their money. And so I think that it, there's, you can't, you can't beat that. You can't beat that. And then the second thing I wanted to point out was that we always understood that, that our Angular documentation uh, was the seed for blog posts. Um, we weren't going to try and teach everything, but we were going to help get the people who liked to teach. We were going to get them far enough down the road so that they could then make their own discoveries and speak about Angular in their own voices. And that's why to this day, there are so much great material about Angular written by other people who had a completely different take on it than we did as authors of the documentation. Awesome. So what are you working on now, Ward? Well, uh, let's see. I got into this, the NGRX thing on a dare. <laughs> <laughs> yep. All right. You know, um, and so John and I uh, dreamed up a, because NGRX, you know, it has, it, 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 it has both a grip on the develop, you know, the developer com uh, community mind and it has, um, it has really good things about it. Uh, and what there was, you know, the big problem is that you have to write as a consumer of it, you have to write so much. And John and I thought we could at least address that. Um, the sheer amount of code that you as a developer have to write in order to write, work with NGRX to manage state on the client. And so John and I were, you know, developed this little framework, a little library that plugs into NGRX and we call it NGRX data and it's supposed to become part of NGRX any day now. Um, so we did that and now uh, I, I'm using it at a client and I've been working for the last year and a half with a client building an Angular app that uses, it's a, it's a, it's a form over data app, you know, type, kind of line of business, although it's the consumers are using, you know, use it. 
and um, but it's got reactive uh, style in it, and it uses NGRX and GRX data, uses them both. And we've been working on it, hammer and tongs, for the last year and a half. And I finally feel like I've got a grip on on how you write things with uh, RxJS and how you write things with NGRX. Um, so it's time to start sharing some of the patterns that have emerged um, with the rest of the world. And I, I hope to do that. Nice. Very cool. And yeah, um, I think we've talked a little bit about NGRX data on Adventures in Angular and it'll be interesting to see where things go from here. Yeah, uh, guess what's missing? Documentation. <laughs> <laughs> hey, I know a guy. Yeah, you know a guy? <laughs> yeah. yeah. The, the thing with open source is you got to figure out where the energy comes from and where the money comes from. And um, I, My hat's off to the NGRX guys, um, Mike, and, Mike Ryan and, and Brandon Roberts. I recruited Brandon Roberts for the documentation. I'm very proud to say. Um, you know, you, you get really proud when it, it, I didn't actually do anything. He does all the stuff, but you know, you feel really proud when you've you know, identified somebody and you found them. Yeah. Uh, so uh, anyway, um, they've done a wonderful job of, you know, because they get nothing for it. Right. Yeah. Um, nobody's paying them to write documentation and, and they've done it. Um, you know, all documentation could be better, but they've got some. Um, and, and there's, and that's, spawn this whole commute sub community of people who are teaching people how to use ngrx so i want to do the same see if i can't spark that with ngrx data yep sounds good all right well um anything else you want to bring up before we go to picks well i've just been yakking away uh <laughs> taking people on a journey that i don't know uh what do i what do i want to say uh, no, I think that's that's it. Let's let's figure out what we want to pick here. All right. Well, I'll let you go first. Do you have some picks for us? Um, I think I want to pick a person who I saw speak in, uh, a couple of weeks back who's still on my mind. Her name is Lisa Genova, a scientist, and she wrote a novel. Uh, called Still Alice, which is about Alzheimer's. It's what, she, you know, she had all of the facts and figures about Alzheimer's and it's amazing. You know, she has a Ted talk and, and it's this, and it's what you would expect. Somebody says, you know, what's the question that's on everybody's mind? Uh, how do I not get Alzheimer's? Right. And of course that's important, right? Cause we'd all really rather not get it, but her talk wasn't about that. And still Alice isn't about that. It's not, it, you know, cause there's really like, if you live at 85, 50% of people are going to get it. And if you're not in the 50% that get it, you're in the, then you're in the 50% of people who have to care for somebody who's got it. Yep. And so it isn't, you know, yeah, it's great. Like, how do I keep myself from getting it? But uh, her focus in this talk, and it's part of what Still Alice is about in the movie Still Alice. It's about how do you relate to somebody who has it? And what are they, you know, I mean, among the many, many, many takeaways, it just 
brilliant touching moments in there. The, the thing that's true about the disease is that you lose your cognitive memory, but you don't lose your emotional self. And it's right there, you know, you look at the diseased brain and it's a horrible, horrible picture that they show side by side a healthy brain and not. And you just see the pit, at, you know, the masses of, of neurons that are gone. But apparently what remains is your emotion. And so what you say, you have, it, what she teaches is how to be empathetic and how to, how in, talk, talk, in de- talking to somebody who has Alzheimer's, they may not remember what you say, but you, they remember how you feel, how you made them feel. For, for hours later, they won't know why they feel that way, but they'll remember, but they'll feel it. And they're still living an emotional life. And one of the just chilling examples is she says, you know, let me tell you two ways, two kinds of conversation that can happen. One is you, you know, you, you talk to your grandmother or whomever, and she says, you know, so I was just, I'm waiting for my mother. I'm sitting here at the bus stop waiting for my mother to come. And you can tell her that her mother died 30 years ago. And she will experience that as if you had, if I had told you, Chuck, that your mother died right now, today. It's not just that it's not true. You will experience the pain of loss, the suddenness of loss, as if it happened today. Or you could say, what a lovely day to be here on the bench. I'll wait here with you. What do you think of X? You don't have to confront the facts. You confront the situation, you, 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 you have a conversation about the situation and you turn it into a lovely moment. And I thought that was so powerful. And there's many things that she said were so powerful. So I want people to go and look up Lisa Genova, look up Still Alice. And that was a long pick. Sorry, man, you got me in this reflective moment. No, it's, it's fine. And it's interesting because uh, my grandparents, my mother's parents, both uh, suffered from pretty severe dementia and I don't know where, you know, what defines Alzheimer's versus dementia, but yeah, I mean that, that was my grandmother. And um, when my grandfather passed away, she couldn't figure out where he was. That's right. And, you know, I, I think the first couple of times one of my aunts or, you know, somebody would, you know, tell her that he had passed and then she would, yeah, she would go through that. It was horrifying. She relives it over and over again as fresh as the day it happened. Yep. And yeah, I think eventually we just got to the point where it was, yeah, it was like, well, you know, let's just sit here and wait for him. Yeah. You know, or just talk to her about something else. Yeah. It was, there were gems like this threaded throughout and, and I, you know, I just think there are life lessons here. And she, yep. and she touched everybody in that audience. Yep. I'll have to go check it out. Boy, I don't know if I have anything that... Uh, I, I, th- I think we should just end it there. Okay. But uh, thanks for coming, Ward. Thanks for having me. Um, if people want to follow you on Twitter or find you online somewhere... Yeah, so that's... Thank you for bringing that up. Uh, I... Uh, I am Ward Bell on Twitter, W-A-R-D-B-E-L-L. Uh, and I'm on Twitter, uh, you know, off and on. I Like everybody, I can't help but look for myself. Um, although I used to be, you know, hang on Twitter every, you know, 
every five minutes. And now I've learned to moderate my Twitter use. Um, I, they should, uh, you can find me on our show together, Adventures in Angular. Uh, and also I have a new podcast, relatively new. I guess we're up in our 20s now um, with John Papa called Real-Time JavaScript. Yep. And I'd love to see you all there. Yeah, go check them out. All right. Well, uh, I guess we'll wrap up right here. Thanks for coming, Ward. Great to be here. Thanks, Chuck. All right. We will catch everybody next week. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more. <laughs>